Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Amanda Fernandez, who is Vice President of Latino Community Partnerships at Teach for America. Today we will discuss educational inequity. Amanda leads Teach for America's Latino initiatives that support outreach to the Latino community and recruitment, advancement, and development of Latino core members and staff. Amanda brings more than 20 years of experience in recruiting, diversity, organization development, change management, and Latino community relations. She manages national partnerships and outreach activities with Latino-serving organizations and institutions. In addition, she guides and leads efforts focused on Latino staff, initiatives, and across program teams with Teach for America. Prior to joining Teach for America, Amanda was a director at the BridgeSpan Group, where she served as an organizational consultant to youth and education clients in support of their strategic planning efforts. Amanda, welcome. Thank you, Elena. This is, I think, a topic that is, for many people, hard to get their arms around because, of course, it's complex and it is so broad in scope. Would you help us get started by presenting presenting us with an introduction, if you will, of the educational picture in the country? In other words... What are we talking about in terms of numbers, if you have any numbers that you can share with us? How many children are we talking about nationwide, and how are they segmented? What kinds of issues, et cetera? Uh, of course, Elena, and I, I just want to point out that the issue of educational inequity or educational disparities in our country today are a massive problem. They really are. However, we do believe at Teach for America that they are solvable. But before I get into the ways in which our organization is addressing the achievement gap in our country, let me just share with you uh, the challenges of educational inequity and, frankly, how it impacts the Latino community, uh, because that is the community that I, in particular, uh, lead efforts in. So let's let's just share with you and the audience just some of the st- the statistics that are out there. In America today, educational disparities do limit the life prospects of over 16 million children growing up in poverty. And this gap of educational disparities, it, it greatly affects Hispanic children, as many of you might know. Um, and Hispanic children are three times as likely to be living in low-income communities. And why that's important is because the achievement gap or the opportunity gap around education disproportionately affects children in poverty. A couple of interesting facts. Uh, Nine-year-olds growing up in low-income communities are already two to three grade levels behind their more affluent peers. So they're already starting at a disadvantage in terms of their educational prospects. Latinos now have the highest poverty rates in the nation. And that one is is quite troubling to me, that particular statistic, in that while the rise in the Hispanic population is an important one for whatever discipline we represent in the business community, um, what's, I think, a bit frightening about that is that as the population growth of the Latino community uh, gets larger, so does poverty. 
and poverty expands as the Latino community expands in our nation. Another piece um, sort of on the end of the spectrum in terms of education is the, the college prospects for Latinos. So despite college enrollment rising among Hispanics, uh, Latinos continue to be the least educated major racial group or ethnic group, I should say, in terms of completion of a bachelor's degree. So those are some pretty stark statistics. But given the focus that I think is is being put on education today, we do believe as an organization, and I myself believe, that we can address this challenge because we have to as a nation. And I think that should be of great importance to our listeners today, given that uh, the business leaders and community leaders listening to this podcast um, will be hiring those future individuals um, or needing a talent pool to draw from. And if we are not educating our Latino community to achieve the highest levels of education that are possible for them, then that, as we may or may not know, um, vastly diminishes our talent pool in the future. Amanda, how many children in total are we looking at in terms of the country? You, you mentioned 16 million children growing in poverty. What is the overall yes. number? Do you know? Well, that is, it's 16 million children in poverty. And, and most, the two groups that make up most of that pool are African American children and Latino children. How many total children are there? Um, so I'm looking, this is a, a, a slice of oh, the pie of children. Total, total children in the nation, you mean? Yes. Um, unfortunately, I don't actually have those figures. Okay, so let's let's take a look at the, that 16 million figure that you do have. Do you know what the breakdown is? What percentage of that 16 million are Hispanic children? So the breakdown of Hispanic children, the the way I can compare it is based on the percentage of Latino children that we serve. So Teach for America uh, teaches, and, and let's just put this into context because I'm using data based on what I know about Teach for America, which is uh, we are currently teaching 600,000 kids in the nation and about 40% of those kids are Latino. So while I can't directly translate that that 40% is the accurate number for overall children in poverty, um, what I can say is that I think we are well aware that as the Latino population rises, those numbers are going to change. And of and course, so we'll be, yes. And so, of the 16 million of those that are Latino, that number will continue to rise. One of the figures that I've heard recently that seems to be holding steady is that about one out of every four babies born in the U.S. today is Hispanic. Is now, the number that you're giving us here that you're working with out of the 600,000, 40% Latino is actually much higher than that. Do you know anything about how that number increases so much from the birth rate to the, the 40% that you mentioned? Well, I think it's the percent of the Latino population that ends up going into poverty. So not all children who are, you know, not all Latino children born are going to go into poverty, but the mass, the mass majority will be going into poverty, just given the current situation in our country. 
So I think that's how the numbers get bigger. And, of course, one of the controversial issues that has been discussed for a while, and, of course, in the heated political times, it pops up even more, is whether these children are the children of undocumented aliens, uh, whether these children are U.S.-born or foreign-born. What can you tell us about that? About the issue itself? Are we seeing that a large percentage of these children who are growing up in poverty are, in fact, foreign-born or the children of undocumented migrant workers or undocumented migrants? Mm-hmm. Well, so I don't have statistics that point to the exact numbers of undocumented kids that are in our school system. I think what I can tell you is that the, the vast majority of of children born are born to undocumented parents, but they're born into uh, born in this nation. So they actually are citizens given their birthright um, here in the United States. So I, what I've observed um, is that it feels like there actually are fewer undocumented children than what it looks like is being portrayed as the number of kids that are undocumented that are actually in our school system. And not that it doesn't exist, because of course it does, but it, from what I understand, the, the numbers are not as large. As what is portrayed. If I understand correctly, what you're saying then is that the majority of these children who are 16 million strong are U.S. born. This is not somebody else's issue. This is not somebody else's problem. These are U.S. children. These are U.S. children. And again, for the most part. I don't know the exact numbers of undocumented kids um, in our country that are in the school system right now. But what I will say is that we spend a lot of time and put a lot of attention on those children that are undocumented that are in our schools, but we should be actually paying more attention um, on all Latino kids who are not getting access to a great education because that is what affects our nation in a much bigger way than focusing on undocumented children that happen to be in this country now and going to school. What are the reasons, can you help us understand, Amanda, that these children are having such a difficult time, that the statistics are so daunting for these children to get an education? Can you help us understand what is causing this? So I can give you the perspective of Teach for America in terms of our work in communities. And as I said, our work focuses on the Latino community and and the African-American community, which typically is underserved in terms of educational access. This is disproportionately underserved. And there are a multitude of reasons why Latino children are not getting access to a great education. I think it's obvious that in low-income communities that uh, the, the education is not of the highest quality. And that is an issue that um, Teach for America seeks to address, which is to um, change the trajectory of kids in low-income communities to believe that they can achieve. Historically, uh, children in poverty 
from an education perspective, have not been given access to uh, the, the type of education that their uh, Caucasian peers or those in more affluent communities actually have access to. And it's because of the distribution of, of where, um, in communities of where dollars go to support the education of our children. And with that said, I think there's also just some of the, the different trappings of poverty uh, and the cycle that exists in communities and in particular in schools where there's not um, a culture of, of achievement and advancement. And unfortunately, what happens in a lot of schools is that children are told, and I have anecdotes from, from so many Latinos who, who I interface with now, that basically we're told, you, you can't go to college, you just, you know, you cannot succeed, so you are doomed from day one in terms of having access to opportunities that this nation offers. So there's a, there's a culture of, of low expectations that exists in a lot of low, uh, in a lot of low income communities, um, where those systems of support should actually exist. And I think that's a challenge because, um, you know, as you may know, um, or not, that, um, you know, our kids, our kids are going to school every day, um, without the proper, uh, sort of, expectations around what they actually have the ability to do. And organizations like Teach for America, uh, our mentality is such that we believe that this issue is solvable because every child um, can learn. And we just have to create the right environment where we have great teachers who are setting expectations every day about what is possible and holding children accountable as well as engaging parents in what is possible for their children. And so I think in, in low-income communities, we're not seeing that in, in the most consistent way that we should if we want to get more of our uh, Latino families out of poverty. One of the things that I've noticed, uh, and certainly here in Florida where I'm based, we unfortunately have a very bad educational record vis-a-vis the national statistics. And one of the things that I noticed that's been going on is that children are graduating and they can't read and they don't have basic math skills. Right. Are these some of the symptoms that you're seeing? Is this what you're referring to when you're saying that because they're coming from a poverty background, they don't have access to education? They don't have access to a great education where where the mindset is different. So you're seeing kids in low-income communities who at the get-go, um, so, so uh, you know, as early as pre-K, they're actually not going to pre-K. And there is evidence that suggests that as early as pre-K, um, that that's where the formation of learning begins for children. And so many Latino kids in poverty are not even starting there. So by the time they actually start school, they're already at a learning deficit. And so they continue to constantly um, throughout their educational experience are lagging um, in terms of where they should be. So they aren't, um, they aren't prepared to pass state tests, uh, that type of thing. And so they're, they're 
immediately set up to not be eligible or to be many grades behind in terms of graduating. Now, what's happening, though, is in some communities, we're seeing that, unfortunately, even if children are experiencing that, that they're still getting pushed through the system. And that's, unfortunately, a disservice to all kids. If we aren't doing what we can to ensure that they are learning at the appropriate grade level, that they're getting the systems of support that they should get um, to to advance. And I think, again, I, I go back to this parental engagement piece, too, because we are finding that um, that parent engagement and understanding of the school environment and how to support their kids uh, does play a role in children having a more successful educational experience. Is it in addition to poverty, are the issues related to getting to school or is it that the education that they have available to them in the schools themselves is not up to the task? Is it overcrowded classrooms. Can you tell us a little bit about the specific issues? Well, I think the issues that you mentioned all play into why educational inequity exists in our country. I think it obviously varies from situation to situation what might be at play in terms of why a child might not be achieving the best education that they can. I think it's hard to, at least from from where I sit, for me to pinpoint what um, the the different variables are um, for a particular situation when I think those situations are individual. Now, I think it's it's safe to say that in, in general, what we see is that in classrooms, sometimes kids um, come to school uh, without, you know, proper nourishment or given the family dynamic, there are different um, issues at play in terms of how they get to school, how they're cared for after school, those types of things. Uh, you know, I want to be careful with that because I think we need to be, um, I think, careful as a society that uh, we're not labeling um, individual situations in terms of what's actually at play. Um, at Teach for America, we just believe that if we put great teachers in a classroom, and we're able to educate kids and set those expectations high for them that that we instill that belief in achievement that that is a major vehicle for the life prospects of that child and i should say the life prospects of that child being improved when we look at the profile of those children is what can you share with us about that is there a particular geographic area that stands out, uh, say, for example, any part of the country where you see that this issue is more prevalent, or is it rural areas versus urban areas, or vice versa? What can you tell us about that? Well, I think it's both. Um, I think with the migration of Latinos in this country having spread geographically, the issue of educational inequity is now in existence in, in both rural and urban areas. 
um, we've we've all seen tremendous growth of the Latino population in the Southeast, for example, so Atlanta, North Carolina, South Carolina, etc., where we're seeing exponential growth of the Latino population. And also it's growing in more rural areas as well. So I think we're seeing that while in the past it may have been more concentrated, um, in particular in urban areas, um, we are seeing now that that disbursement of the Latino population is now creating challenges of education across the country in both urban and rural areas. So to address that, Teach for America, we, we have teachers teaching in uh, both urban and rural settings. We are in 43 different geographies in the country serving both urban and rural students. So I think the profile of, of who's in poverty um, exists in both in both um, segments of the population, rural and urban areas. Are there particular groups that are represented in higher numbers, say children of a particular heritage or race or religion? Does anything stand out when you look at the overall picture? Well, I think just by virtue of the numbers in terms of the nationalities of Latinos in the United States of America, the the large percentage of nationalities that represent the U.S. are of Mexican descent. And so you're going to see higher poverty rates or more educational disparity in those communities where uh, it's a Mexican population by virtue of the numbers. What is the first approach how do you tackle this issue how do you how do you start how do you start well let me tell you a little bit of history about teach for america and and where we decided to start and i'll give you a bit of background on our founder wendy cop who 22 or so years ago and it's 2012 right now um, June 2012, she had this idea as part of her senior thesis at Princeton that uh, there was a whole population of kids in our nation that were not getting access to a good education. And so she thought that if we identify the most um, promising leaders in our country to come teach our most underserved children, to actually create a different mindset about what is possible for kids, that we can actually change the life trajectory of children so that they grow up believing that they can have equal access to the educational opportunities that our nation affords. Along with that, uh, Wendy Kopp said, we will identify these potential leaders in our nation, not only to teach in the classrooms, but ultimately to become uh, part of a, of a group of people, sometimes called a movement of individuals, that will be dedicated to this issue of educational inequity in our nation. So we will have a group of leaders in our country that will start schools 
or, or create their own schools, business leaders who will be so invested from the experience that they had as teachers in the classroom that they understand the vital importance to their own business community of educating children in the communities in which they are um, serving their customers. And so she believed that this was the, a path in which we could create a different experience for kids in the classroom than what they were getting. And that's the main tenet of, of Teach for America in the sense that we identify um, the nation's most promising leaders. They are undergraduates from, uh, we recruit from over 350 colleges and universities. We have graduate students and professionals that apply to be what we call a core member and or a teacher. And they commit to two years to teaching in the classrooms, such as what I've described earlier, uh, teaching in classrooms where children are underserved. And through that experience, they set um, the tone for what is expected in the classroom. And we provide our teachers with uh, training and support to help advance their student achievement. So we, we try to, um, as goals in the classroom, ensure that those kids who are two to three grade levels behind, that our job is to get those kids at grade level. In addition to that, our job as teachers in the classroom is to ensure that we're creating this culture and this mindset of achievement. And that translates um, over time into the child believing that they have the opportunity to, to learn and to have choices in their life. So So that's you know, sort of a, a key pillar to uh, our organization and what we believe to be an important ingredient of how to address this issue of kids in poverty not getting an education. How does that work, Amanda? The These leaders that you recruit that you've described to us that go into the classroom to help motivate these young students, are they integrated into the existing school system as as teachers? Are they in addition to the existing teachers? How does that work? Sure. So how it works is that the, we, I would say, uh, for for simplifying the terms here, is that we basically recruit the teachers. Our organization exists to act as the recruitment function of finding the talent to put in schools. Uh, the school districts that we teach in actually hire our core members and or teachers to fill particular roles in their schools. So our teachers have to pass the same certification exams and continue with the same professional development, additional um, education such as master's degrees for certification in order to teach in certain positions in classrooms all over the country. So we're hired by the district to come in and, and take roles that um, uh, in the large majority are otherwise unfilled and um, be able to go into the communities and, and do the work that we're set up to do. How do you motivate the motivators? <laughs> yeah. So as part of our recruitment process, we have a very... Um, we have a very um, high bar in terms of the people that we hire, and we have a very, uh, I think, a, a process that is set up to identify 
who has the highest potential to actually be successful in a classroom because our, our data over time, we've been able to create a selection model of teachers that helps us to identify what are the key components of what makes our core members successful in the classroom. So what are those characteristics and or competencies that we need to look for in an undergraduate professional or graduate that's applying to our core? And our process is such that it's multifaceted. There uh, has to be um, many steps in the process to ensure that these individuals are already, uh, just by virtue of, of their past history and performance academically and with leadership, that they have a high potential to be successful in the classroom. Because after all, we're putting we're putting our core members in front of kids. So it's just of critical importance that we have the type of selection process that we do to mitigate um, any kind of, um, you know, mitigate any, any uh, potential uh, unsuccessful teachers in the classroom. So we, we based on the research, have identified a right, the, a, a very successful model for what good teaching and what are the types of people that we need to hire to even fill those roles. What would you say are some of the salient characteristics that they must have uh, specifically mm-hmm. as it relates to this large segment of Hispanic children, for example, what kinds of characteristics do they need to have in order to match your needs? So the types of characteristics that we look for is high academic achievement, the average grade point of undergraduates um, that we hire or admit into our core is 3.6 grade point average. Uh, we, we look for demonstrated leadership ability. So they have already led different, um, whether it's through campus organizations or student government or different roles they've played on campus, they've demonstrated leadership that they take charge of things and they get things done. Um, We look for definitely the ability to, to motivate kids. So how have they demonstrated in the past that they're able to get um, individuals, other people behind them to achieve a goal? And we definitely look for uh, their their um, cultural competence, for lack of a better term. So what is their experience working in diverse communities? And how do they view diversity? How do they view the children that they will be teaching? And ensuring that they have a deep understanding of race, class, and privilege in our country and and have a deep understanding of, but also a deep desire to change the trajectory of poor kids in our country. So they have to have demonstrated um, many, many of those things, if not all, in order for us to say, okay, we, we do think you have the, what it takes to be in front of our most precious, you know, uh, resource in our country, which is our children. Now, these, if I understand correctly, are people who are already interested in teaching and are pursuing or planning to pursue a career in teaching. Is that right? Actually, it it, it is not that. Um, So that's what's interesting about our model in that we recruit from all different undergraduate types of programs. And really, it's about a fundamental belief that 
in our nation, children should have access to a good education. And having the the um, knowledge of, and again, the desire to see social change happen in our in our country, and to see justice being served, and that's actually a key tenant because um, what what we do is we look for leaders, and based on those characteristics that I mentioned, those characteristics help us identify leaders, and by virtue of their leadership potential, uh, we invest them by educating them about the problem that exists in our country, because I think a lot of us have an idea of the problem, but once you start sort of peeling it back and understanding the complexities of educational inequity in our country, it it, it can potentially change how you look at things. So it really um, is more about investing young people in the desire to see change happen for our country as it relates to education. How do you know if it's working? Do you have a measurement system in place that helps you gauge individual and collective results? We do. Uh, We are always, uh, on an annual basis, evaluating results of our core members in the classroom and then constantly modifying uh, our teacher preparation programs to ensure that we're on a continuous improvement plan so that kids are always uh, getting uh, access to a good education based on what we learn. So uh, all core members are responsible for ensuring that well, their goal is, is around student achievement in the classroom and being able to advance their kids um, up, to, you know, up to grade level, depending on where that child might be. Some kids might be one grade level behind, two or three or four even. So it is individual, but our teachers are, are brought in to set goals for each of their kids around where that child needs to be relative to their grade. And so we do evaluate um, progress in that way to ensure that children um, are learning in our classrooms. When you are making all of this come together, what are your sources of funding? This, I'm assuming, is a nonprofit organization, right? Teach for America is a nonprofit organization. So we have a diversified funding mix. Uh, We get federal funding. Uh, and then corporate funding, individual donations, foundation donations, etc. That's the makeup of our funding mix. From the perspective of our audience, Amanda, many of our listeners are in business or nonprofits themselves. I think that at the beginning you shared with us why this issue is relevant to everyone in business because these students today are tomorrow's employees, if I understood. How can they get involved? What are the links to the business community, to academia, to nonprofits, between what you're doing and how can they support your efforts, benefit from your efforts, etc.? So I think that the business community um, is part of the solution. So this is a complex issue that requires involvement from many stakeholders in our communities. Um, It is not just about education doing it by themselves or nonprofits coming in and trying to change the trajectory of our kids by themselves. 
I think what's important for our business community to understand is that, in fact, they can play a role and they can play a significant role in terms of what happens in their communities um, for their kids. And I'm, I'm guessing that many of the listeners have children of their own, and I would just ask that we all think about, well, what is the type of education I want for my children? And therefore, what should be the level of education or the type of education all kids should have in the community in which I'm operating or have a business? Um, So I think it's important, A, to educate ourselves on the on the massive problem that exists in our country. Uh, Personally, coming from the corporate sector for many years, I had an awareness of what was happening in our country, and I certainly had an awareness of Latino issues in our country, but I actually did not understand the complexity of what was actually happening to kids in our nation. And I started getting a lot more data around that by virtue of the work that I'm doing and what I've decided to do with my own career, which is to be involved with this effort to solve this problem. Um, And so I think that's number one. So really learn about what the issues are in your own community, about what is happening around education, in particular for kids in, in poor communities. Um, I think one excellent uh, thing that business people can do is this whole idea of mentorship that I think we've all heard about and we've probably, many of us, benefited from. And what we're finding is we're we're seeing in particular uh, when it comes to college graduation rates that Latinos are not graduating from college. And I think we're seeing that Uh, the benefit of having a mentor early on, so maybe in high school or in the early days of college, uh, could be really helpful to more children in a particular community actually completing college, therefore um, broadening that talent pool that we talked about. So I'd say that issue of mentorship in particular for our Latino listeners, uh, personally I believe and our view as Teach for America is that we – Uh, if we have shared background of our kids, that there is the potential for profound additional impact. So not only in the classroom, but profound additional impact, in my opinion, of of being a role model to that child, because if our listeners have their own businesses, their senior leaders, they themselves have accomplished a lot. So how can they impart what they've learned and help someone else behind them understand that they too have the possibility possibility to achieve and really focus on their education. So those would be a couple of things is is this notion of educating oneself about the issue, this notion of mentorship, and frankly, just getting involved um, and beyond mentorship. It's, it's getting involved because we all play a role in solving this challenge for our country. Um, I, as a Latina, feel a particular onus in ensuring that our community um, has a voice about education and that we are constantly um, in the trenches finding ways to improve the options for Latino children in our country so that our country can be a rich and vital country where we have talent, we have innovation, and we have the opportunity to compete in the global environment. Learn about the issues, be a mentor, and get involved. Is that right? That's right. How do you start that? I can say that for a lot of people, 
this it may be a, a revelation. They may not be aware that this issue is as serious as you've described to us today. They mm-hmm. may not know where to get started at their local level or at the national level. Do you have a volunteer program or do you, can you refer our listeners to some possible sources where they can do one or more of these three things that you suggested? So uh, we don't uh, have a volunteer program for business professionals to uh, work with us in this type of setting or be able to contribute through Teach for America. But what I would say is that um, if you have children in school, I would first start with your school to see what kinds of programs are being offered um, in your own school that support children. In particular, if there are children in your school who, um, in your local school that, um, uh, are of low-income background and might be receiving different services from different community-based organizations in the community because most community organizations um, definitely need help and are always looking for volunteers to step up and be a part of the solution and contributing to the success of their children. So there are, I think, depending on the community in which you are in, I would maybe start with what's closest to you in your own school community or in your own district to find out what are the types of uh, wraparound services that are provided for low-income kids and figure out if there's an opportunity to do some of the things that I mentioned around around mentorship or other interests that you may have. So um, teaching business skills or, or finance or marketing um, different different skill sets can be utilized in different capacities within these different organizations. In your time in the corporate environment and now with Teach for America, mm-hmm. you have, of course, gained a lot of knowledge and experience about the Hispanic market. For those of our listeners who want to grow their understanding, what suggestions, what ideas would you share with them on how they can better understand the Hispanic market. In this particular case, we're talking about a student Hispanic market uh, and right. perhaps as well the, the leaders that you recruit to be teachers. What would you share with them? Well, so it's really putting investment in in reviewing the many sources of information and data that exist. Um, I often go to the Pew Hispanic Institute um, to get access to the latest studies and research about the Hispanic population. So they have a lot of data they put out about the migration patterns of the Latino community, census information, um, different patterns around how engaged um, Latino students are in terms of their education and how they view education. So pick, pick the topic. There's a lot of data through Pew that you can sift through that will help educate you on the issue that exists in our country. Um, many foundations or uh, Advocacy organizations have different reports that talk about the state of Latino education. I would probably point to Lumina Foundation. I would point to National Council of La Raza, Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute. Uh, These are all organizations and or foundations that put out information about Latino education. I'd say a college, the college board is another one. And 
there they put out just a lot that you can based on your interest find out a lot more about the state of education for the Latino community and it's very accessible on websites talk to people um you know i've learned that by virtue of just having conversations with people and hearing their stories and their narratives in particular in the latino community that you start seeing a lot of patterns about the experiences Latinos have had relative to their education. And many of those things, I think I mentioned earlier during this uh, podcast, was there are so many Latino kids who are told already that they can't achieve and they've beat the odds and said, but I will. And they've gone and gone to college and they're doing great things, but they've had those experiences. And once you start personalizing the issue, and you start understanding and hearing the stories amongst your friends, amongst uh, community members, those that you interact with on a daily basis in your community and hearing their stories, I bet you will start hearing some consistencies in terms of the experience of Latinos in our country as it relates to education. And I think that also gives a, a really good perspective and can be helpful if you're trying to learn about this issue. Thank you, Amanda, for joining us from New York City. Thank you very much. I so much appreciate this and, and hope that our listeners will join our efforts to ensure that our Latino children and, frankly, all children have access to a great education. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Amanda Fernandez, who is Vice President of Latino Community Partnerships at Teach for America, who discussed educational inequity. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicMPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicMPR.com. That's editor at HispanicMPR.com. 